Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Born to a Mexican-American mother, 16-day-old Ramon Cortinas was adopted by a Castilian father and a British mother and raised in San Francisco. Today, he is chancellor of the New York schools. Writing about this native Californian, James Traub wrote in the December 19, 1994 issue of The New Yorker that Chancellor Cortinas's obvious devotion to his job and his insistent focus on the value of teaching and learning have made him a highly popular figure in New York, much to the distress of the mayor, I might add. Dr. Cortinas received a call inviting him to his present position while he was awaiting confirmation to the post of Assistant Secretary for Education in the Clinton administration. His friends say they told him that New York was a snake pit and that he was foolish even to consider it. What he inherited, according to James Traub, was a bureaucracy whose rules were set a half a century ago local school boards whose members schemed endlessly against one another, principals who shut themselves in their offices while the kids dropped off to sleep in class. The system was a whirlpool that claimed all who ventured near it. When Joe Fernandez, his predecessor, was asked what advice he had to offer his successor, Dr. Fernandez said only half-jokingly, don't take the job. Dr. Cortinas took the job, considering it his ultimate Himalayan challenge. Commissioner Cortinas is one of those rare individuals who has come up through the ranks and has never forgotten that education in the classroom is what schools are all about. Following graduation from college in 1956, he became a sixth grade teacher in Monterey, California. In 1968, he became an administrator in the Pasadena school system and was named its superintendent twice, the first time in 1972. Subsequently, he became the superintendent in San Jose and in San Francisco. As a voice of conscience, Commissioner Cortinas is a passionate advocate for children, an educator who insists on high standards, who reminds all of us that, school, what's, that schools are about teaching and about learning. I'm an old dog in this business, he says. I've seen all these innovations come around two or three times. Why don't we work hard at making schools work rather than trying to find the gimmick of the year? Today, his topic is Teaching Ethical Behavior in the Public Schools, please join me in welcoming the Chancellor of the New York Schools, Ramon Cortinas. Thank you. Good afternoon, and I'm delighted to be here. Let me pose some questions about teaching young people to engage in ethical behavior. Ought schools to be in the business of teaching? Call it what you will. Citizenship, ethics, values, character, morals? Should we be telling students how to conduct their lives? What do we mean by ethical behavior? Can ethical behavior or good citizenship be taught? If ethical behavior can and should be taught, then what is the best way to go about this teaching? I'll give you a preview of my answers to these questions. I believe that together with family members who must clearly be the children's first and most constant teachers, Schools absolutely do have a responsibility to help equip students to become productive, 
contributing members of a society. Equipping students to make the best choices is a critical component of that preparation. Students must learn ways of evaluating the ramifications of their decisions and actions. I believe that the definition of what constitutes ethical behavior is a very delicate one, and one which must take into consideration the culture and sensibilities of the community whose children are being educated. But I also believe that there are some values that are universal. At the core of these are respect for self, respect for others, respect for property. As to the question of whether values can be taught, experience shows that with activities that truly engage students in grappling with choices that affect their daily lives, we absolutely can change behavior. Experience also shows that this can be done in a way that does not compromise the separation of church and state. So I put it to you that we can and we must carefully encourage schools to be a part of the developing of the character of their students. And now a little history. When New York City put its first school system together in the early years, the first curriculum document it produced was a course called A Study in Ethics and in English. It's remarkable to me that although some of the issues this guide addressed, uh, we would now view as unconstitutional, disrespectful of some people's view, are in the very least archaic. And so we should view some of the ideas that guide uh, in this address. There are nevertheless other parts that remain enormously relevant to our day and perhaps eternally true. Here are a few of ex examples of things we would no longer teach, and I'm quoting from the guide. Quote, the cornerstone of self-respecting character is principle to act with firmness in the right as God gives us the right to see, end of quote. Second quote, a manly son will be his father's right hand in the home, end of quote. In, di in distributing and collecting class books and school supplies, children should be quiet and systematic. Order is the soul of life, end of quote. But the fact is that most of the guide includes items like the following, which again are no less true now than they were a hundred years ago. And although you will notice the absence of gender-natural language, they are true. Quote, the personality of the teacher is at the root of all moral education in school. The teacher's sincerity, ideas, attitude toward life are inevitably reflected in the character of their pupils. End of quote. Self-respect which is also fundamental to moral development, is engendered in a child when he does his best at tasks that are worthwhile and are within his powers to do well, with proper recognition by teacher and fellow and school fellows of work. Well done, end of quote. And finally, the child should early gain the idea of social membership. This truth is brought home through group work where the work of each is necessary to the work of all, end of quote. Now with a set of ethics that is, after all, so reasonable and relatively easy to update from changing mores, why have we stopped teaching it? The answer, I believe, lies largely in the ways in which ethics were taught really up through the 1950s. Early on, moral and ethical instruction were not consistent with a lack of separation between church and state. Bible reading, prayer, moral exhortation were standard components of imparting ethics in schools. Inevitably, therefore, some groups' views of these values were emphasized and other groups' sensibilities were ignored.
As public schools became more diverse through continuing immigration, increased access, evolving laws, and changing family structures, they began to back away from the methods of instruction. And it is mainly because ethics and religion were thought of as inseparable that teaching ethical behavior declined. The fact that too many people still believe these cannot or should not be separated, by the way, has led to the curious notion that only the political far right has an interest in developing character and citizenship. Yet we must, if we are ever to progress with teaching character and values to our students, find ways of doing it without endorsing particular religious beliefs. One attempt was made in the popular values clarification curriculum of the 70s, in which teachers helped students to articulate their own value structures, structures without adding much, if anything, about what society considers important and productive. As a result, of course, we now consider values clarification, or I should say I do, to have been uh, useless in helping students to make the most responsible choices for their lives. And so here we are in the 90s. A United States Department of Justice study published this year reports that homicide rates by youth 18 and under more than double between 1985 and 1992. A 1992 survey of the U.S. De Department of Health and Human Services reports that more than 40% of the high school seniors say they have used an illegal drug and drug use among eighth graders is on the rise. According to the Library of Congress, Congressional Research Service, only 40% of eligible voters nationwide actually turned out to vote in the 94 elections. And the 1992 National Assessment of Educational Progress shows that students' respect for school property actually declined as the students get older. It is clear that we need to teach young people certain societal norms about appropriate behavior for the sake of their own safety and well-being. Well, if we do not teach values using instruction that is linked to or grounded in religious beliefs, how then do we do it? First, we must define character education for our day in terms that are truly applicable to our times, even as we must incorporate values that are timeless. Again, I believe that the basic values we must impart in developing citizenship in students are respect for self, respect for others, and respect for property. But particular schools or districts, as they embark on uh, character education programs, need to define a list of their own that reflects the particular needs of their own community. For example, one of our community school districts has developed a resource material for use at every grade level in a variety of subject areas to address the needs for character education. Their first step was to put together a group of parents and teachers and administrators to choose the values that would be included. After long and intense discussions, they came up with six core values, freedom, honesty, kindness, respect, responsibility, and nonviolence. Interestingly, nonviolence was the most difficult to settle on because some of the uh, committee members felt it sounded negative and preferred a more positive term like peace. They resolved the issue in the best way I can imagine. One of the committee members field tested these words in the classroom with actual students. She asked them to discuss and draw pictures about what the words nonviolence and peace meant. And it quickly became clear that nonviolence had a much more concrete meaning to children and a meaning that was closest to what the committee wanted to frame as the value. 
once we have determined as a community which values to teach, we must determine how to teach them. That means applying what we know about how children learn best in activities that truly engage them in the learning process, that relate clearly to the concrete world with which they come in contact, and that are an integral part of the fabric of their schooling. Not an add-on, not a module, not a few short lessons. We must make entire schools, every classroom, every interaction between staff and students, one which supports the ethical messages we impart. Well, these are tall orders. What do I mean by making an entire school environment conducive to learning ethics? Let me give a few concrete examples and emphasize that none of these things happen by accident or automatically. Teachers, principals, parents, and in fact the entire school community must think explicitly about creating a school environment that encourages character development. First of all, the practice of cooperative learning is in itself an experience that encourages students to develop a sense of responsibility for each other. For those who are not familiar with this concept, it includes dividing a class into small groups of students who together figure out the answers to problems set by the teacher or jointly complete a written or other assignment. Students must work together in order for the group to complete the task. In so doing, they develop not only a better understanding for the content of material, but also empathy and understanding and a sense of mutual responsibility for their peers. I also make a particular point uh, whenever I now interact with students of reinforcing the need for assuming personal responsibility. On many occasions after students have asked to speak with me about a certain topic, I tell them, I will be happy to meet with you again if you come up with a proposed solution. Next, let me share with you a story that I heard from the director of guidance in one of our community school districts in the borough of Queens. This woman was leaving a school building late one rainy evening in a deserted area when she saw a lone young man coming toward her. She felt uncomfortable and even threatened until the young man called her by name and insisted that she take his umbrella or at least allow him to walk with her to the car. She had met the student only once before when she had participated in a hearing that resulted in his suspension from school. But in that suspension hearing, adversarial as such an interaction is, Inherently, she uh, uh, treated this young man with a degree of dignity and human respect that he must not often have encountered elsewhere. And when he caught a glimpse of her in the rain, he was clearly glad for the opportunity to return the respect that he had been given. I can give you a much more personal example. From my own early teaching days as a first-year teacher and at 23, I was not very much older than my sixth-grade students, and I found it difficult to deal with criticisms or disagreement from my students, even though they were right. I think that many teachers, young and senior, probably still share that characteristic. One day in my sixth grade math class, I made an error, and I don't remember if it was a grammatical error when I was speaking or an arithmetic error on the board. When one of the students corrected me, I blew up. After all, I thought, I'm the teacher. But I realized that to truly motivate the students, I had to show that I was also a learner. The next day I came to class and said, about what happened yesterday, I didn't handle it very well. Everybody makes mistakes, and we all need to learn how to correct them. So we made a pact, that class and I, that when they thought I was doing something incorrectly, even if they weren't positive, they would bring it to my attention. That meant that we were a community of learners, 
with mutual responsibility. How can you reasonably and fairly hold students accountable for delivering high quality work if the teacher is not also held accountable? Now some of those sixth graders are grandparents, but if ever I meet them, they tell me that they still remember the lessons we learned together that year. So now I hope you see what I mean about making the very fabric of the school community one which reinforces respect for self and respect for others. There is, however, no doubt that we must also move beyond these basics to explicit lessons and activities designed to develop character. As I said earlier, I believe these must be as integrated as possible into the academic curriculum and that they must also help students actively deal with the concrete choices they are facing. Let me describe to you two such programs now in operation in our schools. We are the beneficiaries of a program called Legal Lives which is run by the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office as a way of preventing youth from beginning to engage in violent and other negative behaviors. The program targets fifth graders, and since it is about at that age that children start making important cho choices for themselves, the goal of the program is to help students think critically about these choices, instilling again respect for self and for others. Here's how it works. An assistant district attorney, and incidentally these volunteers uh, of both genders and a variety of racial, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds, so they provide excellent role models, will spend one lesson every other week with a particular fifth grade class and teacher, and each session deals with a particular crime, and there are related readings and homework assignments before and after the lesson. In one lesson, for instance, the attorney introduces the conce concept of shoplifting, first explaining to the students the law, then explaining how it is applied. For example, that someone could be arrested for showing an intent to shoplift. The attorney then creates a scenario in which two kids are in the bookstore, and the first sneaks a book into the second kid's backpack without his knowing it, and both are arrested. Discussion groups follow in which students are asked whether the second kid deserved what he got. Incidentally, the students say no, as he had not himself shoplifted. Then, however, the attorney introduces the question of whether the second kid's choice of the first kid as a friend was a wise one. And as you can imagine, it is at this point that the discussion really gets interesting. And also at this point, the students start learning real lessons about actions that they can take to exert greater positive control over their own lives. I've seen a copy of a letter written by one of the fifth graders after the end of the year to the attorney who worked with his class. It reads, Dear Braxton, I really appreciated your coming because before I used to have second thoughts about making fast money on the corner or being a successful drug dealer. And since you came, you changed those thoughts that were in my head. No, I want to be a great guy like you. And if that makes you proud, then that's just what I'm going to do. Sincerely yours. At the bottom of the page are two drawings, one of a young person in a cap and gown the other of a hand holding a diploma. Another wonderful program developed together with the CERDNA Foundation and actively and active in several of our high schools involves service learning integrated with curriculum areas. For example, one of our vocational high schools, Automotive, uh, Automotive High School, runs a class called Automotive Leadership Foundation. This is a full year course for which the students receive academic credit. It consists of running a foundation, 
with $2,500 to allocate for the year. The students develop criteria for projects they would like to fund, elect officers, study about how real foundations operate, solicit projects from students around the city, evaluate the grant proposals, monitor every project funded, and at the end of the year, collect leftover money, evaluate the successes of the project, and balance the budget. Every student is also required to engage in community service, and some of their activities include volunteering in a local daycare center, tutoring junior high school students, working with senior citizens, and many others. What do students learn from this project and from the overall school culture that community service is cool? From an academic perspective, class participation use their writing skills develop critical thinking skills in evaluating proposals, engage in public speaking, must advertise their service, must track the accounts for all funds. Since each person in the class is responsible for monitoring a project that has been funded, they learn invaluable leadership skills and gain self-confidence. Most important, students learn that they have something positive to contribute to society especially important in a vocational high school where students often feel stigmatized just by being there. As proof of that school, that it has been successful in developing a community of leaders and good citizens, students from this vocational school have been elected to chair the borough-wide student council for the past four years. And so I return now to the questions I posed at the beginning of my remarks. Can schools instill values in students? For decades and centuries and even longer, they did, and they certainly can, without any way of compromising religious freedom. How should this character development occur? As an integral part of what goes on throughout the school and particularly in the classroom. Finally, should public schools engage in character development with their students? It is my firm conviction, and particularly at this point in our nation's history, that we must. Thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Cortinas. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is Dr. Ramon Cortinas, Chancellor of the New York Schools, who has just spoken on the topic, Teaching Ethical Behavior in the Public Schools. Today's Town Hall Forum is made possible by the McKnight Foundation. On April 6th, the Westminster Town Hall Forum will present Secretary of Health and Human Services Donna Shalala speaking on issues of public health policy, including the immunization of children. Those here in the sanctuary who would like to pose a question to Commissioner Cortinas are asked to submit your question on one of the yellow cards, and the ushers will collect them at this time or at the point where you raise your hand so that they may be collected. Commissioner Cortinas, if I can ask you please to return to the podium. We are ready for a period of questions and answers. I'd like to begin by asking you um, if teaching and learning and character education are, are what it's about, what's, what's the first thing that you did as commissioner in New York? I guess I was extremely surprised to find that there was not a standard curriculum uh, for all of the children, uh, and that especially for uh, children of color, children uh, that were poor, uh, that there were not standards and there were not expectancies. Uh, and there were not those standards and expectancies, so there was not a curriculum. The first thing I did was form a committee of some 300 teachers, parents, uh, and community members, higher education people, uh, to discuss and debate 
what are the experience and activities that all children should be engaged in, whether they are first graders, fourth graders, seventh graders, or whatever. Uh, we developed uh, curriculum uh, guides, and those are now being field tested uh, in all of the New York uh, uh, 1100 schools at the present time. Isn't uh, character education a uh, form of indoctrination which does not take uh, our diversity seriously? Well, uh, I believe in indoctrination. <laughs> so you need to know that. Uh, I think that we have become too permissive in education across this nation. Uh, I do believe that there should be the flexibility of different points of view. Uh, but multiculturalism is not a subject. Uh, it is not uh, a curriculum. Uh, it is uh, information that should be imparted in social science, in language arts, in science, in physical education, in art and music, and it should be embedded within the curriculum. Too often we compartmentalize the learning for young people rather than integrated and related uh, to one to the other. Uh, we do not live a compartmentalized life. The purpose of educating students is to be a contributing, a contributing citizen, and I believe that it should be in an integrated way. But I do believe that it should be identifiable, the multicultural experience within the curriculum. One of the audience asks you to please comment on the potential for the, of the demise of the National Department of Education. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one, uh, because uh, when the Department of Education was created, uh, I was not supportive. Uh, not much different than my previous answer because I believe in integrated services uh, to the nation. And I saw HEW needing to strengthen uh, the arm of education, but I see the issues not as education without health and some of the social issues. Uh, I do believe that there is a role for the federal government, and we have a Department of Education, uh, and I believe that we should make it work. I think it is bureaucratic, uh, and it does not provide the kind of technical support uh, that it should. Uh, but uh, in, uh, under Secretary Riley, I have seen uh, some direction that I feel positive about. For example, the reauthorization of Chapter 1 for disadvantaged children. For example, uh, the adoption uh, of Goals 2000. Uh, that was begun under the Bush administration. And since I had some responsibility in the department, we, I do not believe we throw out everything. We build on what was good. And America 2000 begun under the Bush administration and built on by Secretary Riley and President Clinton as goals 2000, I believe uh, is the right way. Uh, we need to minimize uh, the mandates, both at the federal and the state level. Uh, we have a Department of Education. We should spend our energies trying to improve it and make it helpful at the local level, uh, then spend our energies getting rid of it at this time. Those of you who are listening on the radio may call in a question by calling 332-3421. Uh, as with your class, Dr. Cortinas, I need to be corrected and admit my mistake. I gave the date of, uh, what did I say, April 6th, for Donna Shalala. The date is April the 27th. Uh, please mark your calendar for April 27th. Given the horrendous problems and the daunting obstacles that face public education in cities like New York, and some would say in cities like Minneapolis, how can it work? The thing that we all have in common across this nation 
the only thing we have in common, that every individual was in a first grade class or a second grade class or a third grade class. Whether you were in a public school or a yeshiva school, a parochial school or an independent school, education is the common thread that binds us together as a society. And the issues uh, uh, that we face, the social issues that we face, should not be used as the straw man for not making it work. Poverty, ethnicity, culture, linguistics, single parents, the projects are where somebody lives. Uh, we can make it work, uh, but part of the problem is we, the educators, have not provided the kind of leadership and the tenaciousness that I believe are essential. We've pointed to the parents as the problem. We've pointed to the lack of money. We've pointed to all of the excuses. And I believe that we have a responsibility uh, with even some of those real problems and issues to find creative ways of making it work. Uh, Minneapolis, New York City, any other town or hamlet, we all face the same problems. The magnitude is different, and we can learn from each other. Uh, if we don't begin to improve uh, public education and education for children, then our society will suffer. I believe that there needs to be a system of rewards and sanctions. As a superintendent, and I'm not the same as all other superintendents, and I don't want to be compared to others, and I want to be rewarded or admonished based on what I do and what I contribute. And we've got to get out of putting everybody in the same ticky-tacky boxes and recognizing the success and emulating that and replicating it. As a, as a follow-up, would you speak to uh, what you, how you feel about the, the voucher system and its potential uh, impact? I do not believe that the voucher system has, is the answer to the ills of education. Do I believe that there are things that we can learn from the voucher system? The answer is yes. I do not believe that there is one way of educating. And I would suggest to you that the voucher will not be used because it will not be enough money for those people that need it. My experience shows me that in some schools, because they don't want those, quote, end of quote, children, all they have to do is raise their price. I would like to see us spending the effort making the public schools work. And I would like to see the money being given to those teachers and those principals and those school districts that are successful rather than giving it to somebody else. And I would like to see a system of sanctions or takeover of those schools and those school districts that are not working. One person asks, can you really help students without helping their parents? And isn't the parent the key actor? The person says, after all, school is only 180 days a year, six hours a day. We forget that the parent or the adult in the child's life is the first teacher, is the ongoing, is the consistent teacher. We in school systems don't encourage that. For the first three years, we want you to volunteer. We want you to bring punch and cookies. And then when you, we, you start suggesting that, why isn't my little Ray reading or adding at a certain level? You take that, we take that, as criticism. And so we begin to lock you out. And uh, we think we're experts. Uh, and I suggest that, uh, that we haven't made the kind of effort that we should. And I'll give an example. I had a school in San Francisco when I was superintendent, uh, and the majority of the parents, 90%, were either single parents or working. And I said to the principal one day, 
How do you get them here, 90% of them, almost every month? She said, well, they all have to eat. And I invite them for a potluck. And then I, I ha after we've eaten, I prepare something for them, and we take the kids into another room. And it is parent development, professional development. We talk about professional development for teachers, administrators, paraprofessionals, but we are lacking in providing the kind of ongoing parental development that we need for parents and that parents want. One person says it is almost impossible to teach any subject without teaching values and ethics. This would seem to most naturally derive from the materials taught. Do you think the materials in the curriculum have been, in quotes, dumbed down, resulting in the lack of ethics and values taught? Yes. Thank you very much. On to the next question. <laughs> Has the implied social contract broken down which promises young people decent jobs if they attend school? Yes, and let me explain. If we, just, if we think that just going to school is going to be prepare, is going to prepare one for a job, we're wrong. Let me use the system that I work for as an example. The world in which our children and young people going to, are going to live is one of technology. I have 7,000 elementary classrooms that have technology in them. I have 17,000 that have no technology. How can we prepare young people for the world in which they're going to live as a contributing citizen if we do not have the tools for which they need to prepare themselves. I'm not saying that paper and pencil and library books and books are not going to be important, but I am saying that the tool of technology is as essential as the others for the world in which they're going to live. Most people have changed careers three times in uh, my lifetime, uh, and uh, in young people's lifetime, I think that they will, be, they will change more than that. And if we do not provide them the kinds of experiences, and that means to take a drafting class that is archaic without computerized drafting, we're kidding ourselves. To have typing in our schools when it should be with computers, we're kidding ourselves. We're making jobs for people when there are no, for, for we as adults, as teachers, when, they, when those do not produce jobs. So, so I would say to you that just going to school, which we do, and I'm against social promotion, is wrong. It should be based on achievement, not attendance, not behavior, but accomplishment of something, reaching goals. Uh, and we should be able to measure those. The students should know it. The teacher should know it. The parents should know it. The community should know it. Here's a question that I think uh, might elicit a yes or no answer, and I think I know it. But I'll ask it anyway. Do you favor a merit pay system for teachers? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, should we? have national educational standards evaluated by national testing programs? Um, I'll be controversial and say yes. Uh, I will take it further than that. I believe that there should be a national curriculum. I do not believe that I should be dictating or the national curriculum should be dictating how it is taught in the classroom. But I can tell you for various socioeconomic levels, in the schools that I have served over the years, that based on the level of, of poverty or based on the level of uh, socioeconomics is uh, what was taught. And I can take you to Appalachia, I can take you to East LA, I can take you to the Bronx in New York City, and certain expectancies are standards are not provided because those children 
are poor. And so I believe in a national curriculum and national standards, but how they are carried out should be left to the local level and better should be left to the local school community. How do the New York schools deal with nutrition issues, especially the homeless and other students who get no food except in school? Um, we subsidize the uh, feeding program in New York City by uh, last year $40, uh, $40 million. I reduced it by $10 million and am reducing it by $20 million. That is a subsidy. Uh, we monitor the food uh, uh, serving program for children, uh, both the, uh, these, the food, uh, the way in which it is prepared, its attractiveness, and also uh, the way in which it is served. Um, I believe in a food uh, serving program. I believe that the guidelines, though, need to be changed. Talk about ethics. Uh, I think that too much food is wasted uh, because children do not understand the cost of that. And yet none of that food can be used except a milk carton. It can be set aside if it has not been opened. I believe that there should be some choices and children need to learn uh, that if they take it, they eat it. I think we are providing it. And if in growing up in a world that children do not understand that life is made up of quid pro quo is a false world. And so I feel very strongly in feeding our children, but I also believe that they have a responsibility too. One of the radio listening audience has asked this question. Really, it's, uh, it's a comment with a, uh, asking for a response. You talk about leading by example. How can we teach ethics and character to our children when the examples are not there in our society? There are not enough of them there in our society. But there are models. Uh, and there is no recognition of models. And so we need to, I believe, as a part of ethics, help children understand at a very early age that they have a responsibility to model, to stand up, and to recognize that. Uh, many times as models for right, uh, I'm not saying everybody should agree, but there should be a respect for that point of view. But it is so easy for us to lash out when somebody disagrees with us, rather than find a way in which to let people know that we do disagree, but I respect your point of view. Thank you. One person asks, do you think a dress code would help? Uh, I will not mandate a dress code. Do I support a dress code? The answer is yes. Uh, I can tell you that in an economic crisis in the city of San Jose, when uh, I served as superintendent in one of our um, upper middle class high schools, uh, that in the economic crisis in Silicon Valley, that theft was higher in that school than any others because we were about the business of stealing Reeboks and certain sweatshirts that had emblems, etc. I think that uh, it provides a, a level playing field. But again, I think the decision needs to be left to parents and the school community, not made by somebody like me that sits in an office in Puzzle Palace. We have time for one last uh, question, and it has to do with why the Westminster Town Hall Forum was founded in the first place. This forum is intended to give uh, a platform to people of conscience, and conscience uh, comes from the inside out. And so we're always interested in the personal side of what makes a person tick. I, I know that you have a beach house in Monterey, California. I know that you don't have to work. You could go there and put your feet up and walk the beach. What is it that uh, makes you do what you do right now? I'm a recipient of the good life. 
Somebody cared about me. I'm standing here because somebody cared. I believe that we do not have to accept mediocrity. I believe that the social issues that our cities, our towns, our rural areas, and our villages face can be uh, improved. I believe that the quality of life can be better for all people, but it cannot be better by talking about it. It needs to have a group of people to join arms and not be deterred, uh, to be tenacious about doing it. Uh, it is possible, and it is, uh, and it is my responsibility, as well of, as well as all that are listening to me. Commissioner Cortinas, if uh, if I can just, we have uh, just about a minute and a half left. Uh, if you'll leave me just a few seconds to thank you at the end, you uh, uh, spoke with with me over coffee about the asbestos issue and the comment that the woman made that, uh, would you share that? Most of you know when I arrived at New York City there was a major asbestos uh, problem and we could not open schools. And from the 10th floor uh, I heard this noise and chanting and yelling one day and I went downstairs and uh, uh, there were a thousand people protesting in front of my office. And uh, I went down and security was very upset with me, uh, but I went among the people and I agreed to visit that school. I closed that school uh, because it was not just asbestos. It was not an environment where teachers could teach or children could learn. And the school reopened a year later in another place. But before I left that day, a lady said to me, aren't you afraid to be here? And I said, no, should I be? And she said, yeah, no other chancellor's ever been here. And I said, I'll be back. When we opened the school a year later at a different place, this lady hugged me and said, you've been back eight times. It does make a difference, our personal commitment to improving our society, and whether we have children or not, education is all of our business. Thank you. Commissioner Cortinas, we thank you for not putting your feet up yet and for staying at it on behalf of all of us and the children especially. We're glad to have had you here today and we're glad to have had all of you here for the Westminster Town Hall Forum.